We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are here this week with someone overdue to be on the podcast. He is the executive director and founder of the Charlotte Chess Center and Scholastic Academy, also known as the CCCSA. Um, Their chess center has been mentioned many times on the podcast. Uh, It won the Chess Club of the Year from U.S. Chess in 2019. The reason why is in addition to a thriving scholastic program, or at least thriving pre-COVID. They do incredible work promoting chess on a national and international level, running norm tournaments for IMs and GMs to get their titles. They have a popular Twitch stream and run the popular uh, Daniel Naroditsky versus the world matches. Uh, GM Daniel Naroditsky himself is affiliated with the club, as we discussed when he was on the show a few months back. So, of course, they come up all the time on the podcast, and I'm a huge fan of the business they've built and the way that they're promoting chess. So I am 
happy to finally bring in their founder. So, oh, and I should mention before I bring him in, uh, our guest is also a super strong player, rated nearly 2,400 USCF. And I recently found out he's an adult improver in his 20s. He's taken his rating from about 2,000 to 2,390, which is really hard to do. I mean, it, obviously, as you guys probably know, raising your rating gets harder the higher you go. So that while building a business is an amazing feat. And without further ado, I would like to talk about all of this. So uh, FM Peter Giannatos, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. I mean, so you were on like my initial list, like four years ago when I started this podcast, because even then I was impressed with the work that Charlotte Chess Center had done and it's only grown from there. So I've read uh, some of the club's press clippings, of course, over the years. So I know a bit about the backstory, but I do feel like that's probably the best place to start. So founded in 2007 and you're only 29. How did, how does that even happen, Peter? Right. Yeah. So the, so we used to be the uh, Queen City Chess Association and this will probably be relatable to a lot of people out there. So we started at a library. Uh, we started at the Asian Herald Library here in Charlotte in 2007. I was actually still in high school along with some local chess enthusiasts. And um, and so we just met at a library and little by little, we just started to get a big following coming to the library. Like in the summertime for one rated game a week, we might have 60 people come in and play. Uh, and, and for Charlotte, that was a lot. And, uh, and so... From that moment on, in 2007, fast forward to 2014, uh, I was at that point my last year of college. And I said, you know, if chess is going to remain in my life, then, you know, it's got to be a career for me. Otherwise, I'll just move on. You know, I, I studied economics in, in college. So I said, I'll either just move on into the banking industry, which, which you know, heavily populates like Charlotte jobs here, but, or... I'll try to make chess a sustainable business and and uh, just pursue my passion. And so that's that's what happened in 2014 when we went from the Queen City Chess Association, which was a volunteer uh, local you know chess meetup once a week, to the Charlotte Chess Center, which which I founded in 2014. Well, we're glad you did. And as I recall, you got seed money from some members of the community. Is that right? That's, that's, that's right. So we, you know, have, having been involved for seven years within the community, doing these free meetups uh, at the Asian Herald library, running some tournaments on the weekends at the university, whenever I was there, um, you know, we build up quite a loyal following. And so at that time in 2014, I started personally reaching out to people who were regulars uh, in our chess community, sort of uh, familiar faces. And I said, listen, I think Charlotte could have a chess a brick and mortar chess center. And would you be willing to contribute to helping that get started? So raised nearly $30,000 all sort of organically from members. I mean, there was no major donor or anything like that. It was mostly just like $500 here, $100 here, $1,000 there, depending on the, depending on the members. And uh, I thought, you know, I think that's a great way to start for people looking to, to do the same thing is first, you know, put yourself within the community uh, and, you know, let the community build trust around you and then and then see see what happens from there. I think that's really the best way uh, to get something like like a chess center started. 
Yeah, and shout out to everyone who contributed. I'm sure that uh, the Charlotte Chess Center could not be the success story that it is without all of you guys. And correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but these people did not like purchase equity in the Charlotte Chess Center. They just wanted to contribute to it and helped kickstart it, basically, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you come into the Chess Center since we've since day one, uh, since 2014, we actually have an engraved uh, plaque from all those original donors. So you could come in today and still see their names there. And a lot of them have moved on from chess. A lot of them aren't still around in their families whose children played who are no longer around. But we proudly list their names and intend to list their names uh, forever um, because we're you know very grateful for their contribution in, in, in helping get it started. Yeah. And Peter, you mentioned that you studied economics in college, which, you know, I'm sure that does help. But like, let's be real. A lot of people study economics in college and they still don't know how to run a business. Um, And especially prior to the last like 15 to 20 years, uh, chess players were not particularly known for their business acumen, at least the ones who who stayed in the chess world. But I've been really impressed with with your ability to sort of uh, make sure that the business thrives enough to hire people, give other people work um, and pay the bills, but also to do stuff that's for the community. And I'm guessing doesn't generate as much profit. So like, how did you figure all this stuff out as such a a young man? Yeah. So I think a part of that was I grew up in a very stereotypical Greek immigrant family. So my whole life, uh, I worked in restaurants that my, my parents ran. Um, They are, you know, uh, you know, I'm the first generation to be born in the U.S. and uh, my parents came from Greece and they opened, you know, restaurants and I worked at restaurants my whole life. So I was in business my whole life. You know, I saw from, whether it was like busing tables or seating people, I at least saw my parents running a business. And I think that 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 helped me a lot. I mean, at least orient my mind to sort of business, business like mine. Yeah. And, and because I started chess a little bit later, it wasn't you know, I don't think it was a big factor for me, like the fact that I played chess and that chess players may not be the best at more business related activities. For me, I guess I was in business first uh, because of my family. And then, you know, I learned chess in my teens. So I was already, you know, develop developing at that point. And and how much was um, your like how how at the forefront was making the business sustainable when you made this was it just like we'll raise this seed money we'll get this space we'll start doing chess stuff and we'll see what happens or like were you committing to losing money for a while or were you like no this is going to be uh self-sustaining from from the jump uh no i think i think you know you could consider it losing money even though you know my goal was just hey if my if my equity like my my work and time goes into it and that you know, we don't need to take any additional loans out. We don't need to indebt ourselves. That was fine for me. So for the first two years, it was basically like, like if we had a tournament, I was your tournament director. If, right. if the bathrooms needed to be cleaned or the uh, paper towels needed to be changed, I was the person who did that. Um, and you know, I was basically always there, Ben. It was like there was 24-7 I lived at the chess center for the first two years. And I think I hired my first full-time staff member on salary uh, in 2016, uh, Grant Owen, who is who has been a huge a huge help to the Chess Center, and he's uh, the assistant director. He's you know the sort of second down. And um, but for the first two years, like with most businesses, Ben, you're really trying to establish what works for the for the business, and that took a lot of trial and error, and it was a lot of sacrifice which is why people who have like yourself, I know you on your podcast, you mentioned many times you have family 
And uh, it's you can't just roll the dice because uh, people rely on you, you know, to bring it. I didn't have that. So, uh, you know, I could bum it out for two years and and that was fine while I was building while I was building the business. So it was a big sacrifice, Ben, you know, first two years, huge sacrifice. It wasn't all roses like, you know, people see it now and they're like, wow. But at first two years, it was it was a struggle just just trying to figure out what people wanted, you know, trying to balance what I believe the chess center would bring and what reality was, because it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be when I opened it. You know, I was, I was maybe a little too optimistic when I, when, you know, when, when I opened the chess center. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's not uncommon for any uh, business starting out. And for, for listeners who aren't as familiar with Charlotte, it's um, about 2.6 million people in the metropolitan area um, in the state of North Carolina. So it's a growing city, but by no means like a huge metropolis. I mean, as Peter alluded to, they do have Bank of America uh, there. They're often sort of mentioned as like an up and coming type city. And they do have some uh, some chess history. I mean, shout out to my friend, Mike Klein, who I know you know as well, Peter, um, who, who's been running programs there for decades. And of course, you've got Naroditsky down there now. So uh, there was some chess history, but I wouldn't say there was unusual chess history prior to your arrival. Um, so just in case anyone listening is thinking about trying to emulate what Peter did, I mean, I do think he didn't have any special circumstances, really. Um, so once you get the business going and you sort of, as you say, have some some growing pains in terms of uh, things not going, getting off the ground as quickly as you wanted, what resources did you find useful or was it all just trial and error in terms of learning uh, what to do to make sure the business could sustain and grow? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it, Ben, was trial and error. I, I can uh, when I look back at those years and, and uh, try to remember everything that I tried that didn't work. Um, and it was a big you know, I, I think about that and I go, OK, it was a lot of trial and error. Obviously, you try to you try to gauge interest to see what people actually want. And then for me, I mean, my, my sort of advice to everyone else is that even chess enthusiasts can't really do chess more than once a week. Uh, if even students, but, um, but, but adults for sure, like even if they love chess coming to the, coming to the chess club more than once a week for most people is, is, is not easy to do. Right. So you sort of when when I first opened, I thought, OK, you have a lot of chess enthusiasts and, you know, they'll be hanging out at the chess club all the time. We'll get them in for some blitz tournaments. We'll get them in for some casual play or whatever. That didn't really happen because people uh, people still have lives to live. And, and you know, for, for most uh, for most adults, they can devote maybe one night a week where they come down to the chess center or one day a week or one day a month where they play like a tournament on the weekend or something. So. It was a big, it was a big wake up call for me. And we just basically had to adjust what we were offering. So my advice was don't try to take from the same small group of chess players. So you really just like, we needed to expand what we were offering. So that meant like, like we didn't start running unrated scholastic tournaments until a year in, into, uh, into establishing the chess center. But that was like a huge that was like a huge new way to get people to come in, right? I was mainly focused on the existing chess players, trying to get them to come in for rated tournaments. But um, so anyway, that's just one example of how we try to get different people to show up to the chess 
to the chess center. And that was a very smart thing I did. And, and uh, one of the things I recommend to people if they have a chess center is don't open too much, which yeah. sounds, which sounds a lot, which sounds sort of counterintuitive. So, so I was opening all, all the time because I just wanted to be just like any other business you want to, you want it to be convenient for people uh, when they want to show up. But what that actually does is it splits apart your group. So let's say you give people like you're used to meeting one day a week and you get 60 people, but then now you're offering four days a week where there's a different format every day, game 10, game 30, game 90, whatever you split that same group up. And it actually, it actually is not as great for the chess community to split people up like that. It's just not as fun for people. They don't get to socially interact as much. There's not as much kibitzing and skittles and stuff like that. So my recommendation to people because I learned this the hard way is have a few activities during the week and make sure those are strong. Don't go for the um, every day a week chess club where you just open every day a week and you could literally, you know, you could walk in and there might not be anyone there. That's just not a good look. That's just not a good look for, um, for the chess club. So you want people come to you there, you know, you want there to be 20 people in the chess club, right? So when they, when they stop in for the first time, they go, Oh, wow. Like chess is, there's something going on over here. Like, this is pretty cool. As opposed to, Hey, we're open, but you want to play me? Cause I'm the yeah, only one I'm here. here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I grew up in that kind of chess club, of course, because I'm from an older generation and what you say totally makes sense because what you needed in a chess club has changed over time. I mean, you you used to need a place to play chess. Now you might need a sense of community. You might need to learn more about chess, but you don't need a place to play chess with uh, with the boom, with the online boom going on. And of course, we'll get to the transition to COVID stuff. But I, right now, I'm more interested in the brick and border, mortar business under the, uh, the uh, optimistic assumption that someday this pandemic will end. Um, so... You mentioned these growing pains. Um, one thing I'm curious about, Peter, is if there was a moment, did you ever just think this isn't going to work? Or was it doing well enough where like you're like, okay, this isn't ideal, but I can adjust things? Was there any moment where you considered quitting? Uh, I, I never really considered quitting because when, uh, when you know, I, I felt in a way, even though I sh- maybe shouldn't have felt this way, but in a way I felt indebted to those who believed in the idea and sort of believed that I was the right one to to carry it out. So feeling a little bit indebted to those people who contributed to get it started, quitting wasn't really an option for me. I thought, you know, no matter what, I'm not going to let it, I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to try to make this work. There was a time, you know, probably within that first two years where I just thought maybe I need to get another job. You know, maybe, maybe I need to do something else. Um, You know, open the chess center, let's say three or four days a week in the evenings. I could still have a job during the day. You know, I could even use some of that income to, 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 to carry the chess center along. Uh, I'm glad I didn't do that, Ben. I'm glad I didn't uh, you know, split myself too thin. I'm just, you know, I just kept working on the business, try to figure out what works. Uh, and, and I'm glad I did it. But there was certainly a time where I thought. And this was thought, before, before you hired Grant Own. This was when you were just a one man shop, basically. Pretty much. Yeah. Where I was just a one, one man shop where I had like one of my college friends helping me teach some school programs. And, uh, and you know, like, you know, again, like I was checking you in at the front door for a tournament and then I was directing the tournament and I was changing the paper towels in the bathroom. Yeah. So it was like, you know, that after, after a year, year and a half of doing that, 
and you're still doing it, you're thinking, huh. you know, maybe, maybe uh, this, this, and I, don't, and you know, at that time, Ben, I, I signed a short team, a short term lease of two years because I didn't know how it was going to go. And I thought, um, and at the time the market would allow for that, like a two year lease. Now it's pretty rare, but um, I, I thought, you know, if it doesn't work, I'm, I'm here for two years, you know, and, uh, and I'll, I'll try to make it work. And, and there was that judgment period where it was like, okay, we're, I can get out of this. You know, I, I don't, I'm not, you know, I can, I can just move on. Like, it's not that big of a deal. I would have been 20, 24, 25 at that time. It wouldn't have my life, you know, I was still, still been able to, to catch up, but I'm glad I didn't, but it was, it was certainly a struggle the first two years. And, uh, and I would do some things differently if I could, you know, if I could, uh, if I could go back and, and redo it. So what, I, would, I would, what do would you do? What would you do differently? I would have first established some of the business related items before opening a, a brick and mortar chess center. I, I think I got too emotionally attached to the concept of a chess club, an actual physical brick and mortar chess club. I think, you know, what I should have done is started running some academy classes, uh, started running some additional tournaments, uh, and started to push more in the school programs before opening an actual chess center. So basically do everything that I did, but the chess center comes last. You know, I thought, you know, I was, there's this saying, you know, like build it and they will come or whatever, which is like the most, it's the worst saying ever. You, you, know, yeah. you have to wipe it out of your, your brain. Okay. Because at least for that, for me, it wasn't like that. What I should have done is build, you know, the supplemental parts of the business. And then the last thing that should come is the brick and mortar because then you have your fixed overhead. So um, I was just optimistic and I would say that I wasn't really at that time, I wasn't, I was uh, overly optimistic and I wasn't really aware of, you know, how, how many people I would actually need to come in to make it work. But I did. And a lot of it was subsidized by the classes and the scholastic programming, which is why I'm, I always advocate for our junior players. And I stand up for them when the grumpy adults come in, because I tell the adults, I say, listen, Okay, you want a place to play chess? You want a brick and mortar chess club? We can't do it without we can't yeah. do it without our scholastic community. So get over it. You know, if you want a place to play chess, you know, we'll try to keep the environment friendly. We'll try to have a few nights for uh, adult players, but if you're playing an open tournament on the weekend and you're sad to see kids there because you're a grumpy old man, well, just remember the reason why you have a, a regular place to play chess is because of them. Because without the kids, without that part of the business, you can forget about it. That's important. Yeah. I mean, because I, I get it from both sides. I mean, I'm, I, we've had many conversations, of course, amongst the adult improver set here on the show. Uh, playing the kids is tough. You know, it's hard keeping up with them. And of course, it does change the social dynamic as well. But I've also, as someone who, who runs after school programs, um, it's you know, I'm placing a lot more emphasis on the podcast recently, but when you talk about growing the business, the idea of a physical club is always like a giant, a giant threshold to cross that a lot of people are just like, when they start to crunch the numbers, it's just daunting. And as you say, obviously, like 
Scholastic, just because the sheer scale, the number of the number of potential students you can get from Scholastic programs compared to adult programs, just uh, changes the game entirely. So, if you don't mind saying, Peter, like I mean, I'm impressed with the adult program. I know, um, I think it's uh, Bradley Uo Perry. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but he's a Charlotte listener of the podcast who's been emailing me for years. Get Peter on. Get Peter on. I know he's he's a big fan of. Uh, what you guys are doing. Um, but so what percentage of your business comes from the Scholastic program as compared to the adult, if you don't mind getting into that kind of detail? Sure. It's changed. It's changed a lot uh, recently because we've added, uh, we've added a lot of open tournaments. Uh, let's say uh, norm tournaments, open tournaments, just all sorts of, we've diversified a lot from where we were at the beginning, where the school programs sort of leveraged the whole business. And that was the way it was at the beginning. But I would say now, Ben, uh, let's say pre-COVID. Like, I don't want to judge anything during COVID because yeah. it's. I think it's an anomaly. But um, let's say pre-COVID, seventy uh, percent of like let's say the revenues came from s- student-specific programming. So let's say it was uh, the classes are are our classes that we hold that we held at the Chess Center, and then the school programs where we go out to the schools and and we teach in the schools. So I would say 75 percent of all of our revenues came from that where the other the other revenues came from tournaments at the club membership dues which are pretty minimal um and the larger scale tournaments that we do like weekend open tournaments at hotels and uh, the norm tournaments and and just like other specialty events that we do we did like for example we did the pan ams last year in charlotte we did the north american junior last year in charlotte we're also doing it this year as it turns out but but um, but so, you know, adding those in decreased the amount that the scholastic programs contributed, but still, uh, the you know, it's still a majority of of what we do. Okay, know? but yeah, maybe I probably would have guessed even a higher percentage. So I mean, again, it's um, it's a testament to your business acumen that that you're able to provide. Uh, so many opportunities for adults and keep the the community engaged um, across age ranges. I saw on the website, you say you have students from age like four to 105 or something like that. Yeah, that's an exaggeration. I don't know. I mean, we had a, we had a member who was, who was like a hundred, 101, but she couldn't come in to the chess center anymore. So we'd go visit her at like her assisted, assisted care. She was like 1600. She played okay. Still, even in her, even in her hundreds, she's still, you know, that's awesome. Uh, she's still playing, but, but, um, but you know, Ben, one thing I wanted to say about, uh, because I know a lot, a lot of adult listeners uh, on the podcast is even though the scholastic, uh, let's say the, the business is primarily a, a one that is related to the kids. I always thought it was important to, to keep the adults engaged as well. So even though I recognize they're not the people who pay my bills, um, I do make an effort to keep them involved. Like pre COVID we had uh, an adult only like learner series, uh, which was on Thursday night. And all you had to do is be a member, which was only $40 a year. All you had to do is be a member and you could come in and like my, uh, one of my coaches and myself would do the adult learner series. You could learn how to play. You could learn how to play better. Like if you just knew how the pieces move or you just play casually and we had 20 or 30 adults coming in every, and we made it so cost effective. Like we, you know, if you were, if you were actually doing a spreadsheet, you were losing money. Like we were losing money on that, but I didn't really, I didn't really see it that way, you know? And in fact, one of my, one of my, uh, one of the great employees that I added to our, 
to our staff actually came from that adult oh, learner cool. series. Ursula Smith, who's our director of uh, like, let's say quality assurance. I can't remember her actually her actual title, but basically Ursula has a background in human resources and she, and, um, and she would actually make sure that our instructors were showing up to schools on time. She would pop into the schools, make sure they're dressed properly, make sure that they remain professional and everything. And so she wasn't, a, she's not a great chess player. I hope she's not listening. She's, <laughs> she's not, she's not, a, she's not a great chess player, but just, just meeting her and adding her to our community was worth that one like adult learner series night, you know, yeah. where it was where we were basically losing money on it, you know, just to be there. But I, I, I sincerely believe that even though, you know, as, as many chess academies open and many brick and mortars open, I, I, I know in Texas, there are a few and, and also they're popping up all over the place. Uh, and of course, you know, I, I just think that even though the adults aren't paying your bills, I do think it is important if you want to build a chess culture, which as a chess player, that's what I want to do. So I want to build a chess culture somehow you have to keep the adults in, engaged. And, and one, one thing that we do is like we have this Tuesday night, one rated game every Tuesday night. And we were doing, that was going really well uh, pre-COVID. On, during the school year, we would get about 50, 55 people to show up. And then in the summer, we were getting like 80 to 90 people to show up playing a rated game um, on yeah. one, one night, you know? And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> one thing that we do is, because of that social element and there aren't any prizes, it's just rated. Let's say you have like under 1700 section and we're like, okay, so adult, adult, kid, kid. And we actually rig the pairings like, because we, and we openly like admit that we rig the pairings. It's not, you're not playing for anything. You're just playing for rating. Like there's nothing illegal about it. We just want there to be a little bit more of that social element. Right. So we, so we're like, okay, these adults, they're not playing for anything. Yeah, the game is still rated, right? But there's no prize, um, so it's like, hey, we want we want people to feel comfortable coming in here, and we want people to meet friends when they come in here, right? So it's like, oh, like there's this 50 year old guy, he's 1300, and there's another, there's a new guy, he's also 1300. Why don't we pair them together and hopefully they uh, they create a friendship and a bond and it helps build our community? And we did that for many many years, and that's helped Ben. That's like a that's something that helps bridge that that issue that that we were discussing a little bit which was adults come in it used to be that in the 80s or whatever they would go to the chess club and they would play somebody like them right now they go to the chess club and they're 1400 and they play a six-year-old or they play a seven-year-old and 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 they don't like that as much right so they'd rather just stay at home there's no social element it's not as fun for them we sort of uh we sort of try our best to to make it fun for people and, and, and factor in the social element. Cool. Yeah. And just a bit more on the chess club. I find this stuff fascinating. I mean, and it's so important for the ecosystem of chess. So listeners, I know a lot of you, maybe, you know, you have other jobs, you're, you're trying to get better at chess, but maybe this isn't like, uh, as related to your life, but it's important and it's interesting to me. So a couple more on it. One, when I interviewed uh, grandmaster Ben Feingold, I think it was the second time he, he gave you a lot of credit. Of course, he's had, uh, some success um, moving to Atlanta and building up a, a chess center there, sort of uh, in the spirit of the the Charlotte Chess Center. So I'm sure that it's some of the advice that you've already shared. But w- what did you tell Ben when when he reached out to you? 
Well, so Ben actually uh, lived in Charlotte and worked for the Charlotte Chess Center in 2015 and 2016 for, for a quarter. He was still with the St. Louis Chess Club at that time. Uh, it was grandmaster in residence there. But there was a first quarter of every year. So like January to March, April, he would have some free time before the U.S. championships started. So for two years, Ben temporarily lived in Charlotte for the first quarter. And he worked for, and he taught for the Charlotte Chess Center. And we hung out all the time. And so, so it wasn't as much of what I told him. I think he just saw it for himself. Um, I, I think he saw what was happening for himself. So like he, it, it, uh, he came in, we were really like the only two coaches at that time. Um, I, I sort of invested in bringing Ben here. I thought it would help the, it would help build the chess culture. He's sort of famous, you know, the YouTube videos at that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I think Ben just saw what was happening and it, it could have been something that inspired him to later open his own chess center in Atlanta, which he did with his wife. And, um, and, and so I didn't give him any advice per se. I think he just saw it with his own, with his own eyes. Okay. Yeah. Well, whatever. I mean, as you say, it's nice to see them popping up everywhere. And certainly Ben is uh, an amusing and uh, great ambassador for the game. Um, So we have one more related question. And then I want to get to your norm tournaments, which are, of course, tangentially related. But uh, this one is from a Patreon supporter of the the, uh, podcast. Um, So uh, Bruce Scott sent in a question, which is, how has the pandemic benefited chess? And are the benefits greater than the harm? Which... You could talk about chess generally, but of course, I'm also curious about how it's affected your your business. Right. Yeah. So I I think that the end result of the pandemic, we don't know yet. Um, And I mean, as far as the chess as a whole goes and then chess, the chess business side goes and that that applies for myself and all academies, uh, you know, uh, whatever academies, brick and mortar chess clubs, whatever. In general, I'd like to think that the Internet boom, which we are semi a part of. I mean, we're, we have our Twitch channel and we try to conform to the times, at least for right now. Um, I think the chess boom and exposing people to chess online doesn't hurt. And I've always, I've always said that if you have, if you go from 1 million people playing chess online to 5 million people playing chess online, I don't think that has a negative impact on brick and mortar chess clubs after COVID is over. In fact, people may get the itch to come out to a chess club in their community and play over the board games with somebody. So I think, I think the exposure that chess is getting online is a good thing. And I think that, yes, that means more people are playing online, but I think it means that more people are playing chess in general. And so I think that that just means a lot of our adults, Ben, that come in there, a lot of them are playing chess online. They didn't learn at a chess club and then went and played online. It was the reverse. They learned online where yeah. they could, you know, they could they could learn peacefully without being judged. And and then once they once they got a basic understanding of chess, then they would come in uh, to the chess club. So I think Ben, the the pandemic is not good for any businesses, which is I don't whine about it too much. You know, most businesses like my parents are still in the restaurant business. Most businesses are not doing well. You know, because of the pandemic. I mean, how could you, right? If you're used to people coming in, uh, playing tournaments, coming in for classes, you know very well the school enrichment activities are, they, they don't carry the same value under the pandemic because their kids are at home. Yep. So so the business side of things isn't going well right now. Um, but, you know, we'll get through it. 
um, as it's temporary. Now, I don't know what that means. Temporary means a year. Temporary means two years. It doesn't matter. Eventually, you know, I don't know how society will change, but that's far beyond my ability to, to judge right now. But I would just say that I don't whine too much about the pandemic because we're not the only ones uh, that are suffering. I mean, as far as a, a business goes, and we're lucky in a way that we can do some chess online, you know, teach some chess classes online, do lectures online, run tournaments online, which we've been doing actually for, for a while and camps and classes. So not as popular for us, but it hasn't been a total disaster. So I'm not whining about it. I do hope that we get back to over the board chess and to be able to reopen the academy at some point. And I think that the internet chess boom will actually come to help brick and mortar chess clubs and physical chess clubs in the end, once people get, you know, once, once things are safe again. Yeah. And I, and that gets to, I think, a, a misconception that some people have generally because they, they hear so much about the chess boom. I mean, you know, Queen's Gambit, I'm finally watching it. It's amazing. Um, you know, they did a feature featuring uh, GM Maurice Ashley and Alexandra Botez on CBS Sunday morning this week. So it's pretty uh, rare stuff for the chess world, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily lifting all boats at this moment. Um, as, as you allude to, Peter, I know that scholastic programs are often kind of are struggling. I mean, as you say, it's not the same experience um, for kids to play, to do Zoom classes online, especially if they're doing Zoom all day. Parents aren't necessarily interested in an extra class unless their kid really loves chess. And also without the, uh, the feedback and the kind of hook of uh, IRL tournaments, um, it's, it's, it's only the most diehard kids who are going to be able to maintain their interest necessarily. So that's just something I want to bring light to, because I do feel like everyone's saying chess boom, chess boom, chess boom, but it's not necessarily a chess boom, uh, for everyone right now. Uh, but like you say, um, a, a rising tide lifts all boats. Anyone who can get through this, I do think that on the other side, that, that increased in, that increased interest will, will hit like every aspect of chess, including scholastic programs. So uh, anyone listening, keep your head up and try to hang in there, which makes me wonder, Peter, what, what about your employees? How, how are you able to, um, are you able to, to keep them active? I know that Adam Weisbarth, founder of the Silver Knights Chess Academy, very successful academy in the, um, in the DC area. I know that, that he had to make some layoffs. Um, he had to really adjust on the fly. Um, and it, you know, it's tough. No one wants to do that. What, what have it, what's it been like over in Charlotte, Peter? Well, that's been the lowest point for me, Ben, is not that I've had to slash my own income, uh, to, to deal with the pandemic, to keep the business sustained, not that, but that yes, we had to lay people off because there's simply not enough work to go around. And, um, and so the biggest low point for me in this pandemic was going from almost 20 employees to six. Um, of course, those employees, many of those employees were not full-time employees. They were uh, retired, let's say, uh, people who were helping teach programs or, uh, you know, they were hourly, part-time. But still, I mean, that was a low point for me is having to, is having to let people go. And uh, it, not surprising to hear that Silver Knights had to do the same thing. Uh, I think that anyone working with uh, school programs has to do the same thing because you can't uh, – the school's – in many places aren't open. And even if they are open, you, the enrichment providers are not being invited to yeah, the school exactly. for safety reasons. So even if they are open, it's you're still not being invited. And as you mentioned, and uh, you know this very well, and I have discovered this very well. So 
the online chess enrichment is is not the same as the school chess enrichment. For example, your your child's at school, that school ends at three o'clock, chess club runs from three to four thirty or whatever, three fifteen to four fifteen, doesn't matter, whatever it is. And so you leave work a little bit later, you 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 pay for that chess club for your kids and you say they're learning something, they're learning some chess, but I'm also getting an additional hour to come yeah. pick up my kid. You don't have that anymore. So that part of the value in what we used to do, Ben, and, and I'm not trying to say that it was childcare only. It wasn't. I didn't I didn't treat my chess programs like childcare, but parents just saw it as it's a little bit of childcare, and we hope our kid learns something. Now they don't need the childcare part of that. So as a result, the numbers just aren't there. So I can't imagine, you know, I haven't I haven't talked to everyone. I, I talked to uh similar service providers in my region. For example, Kid Chess in Atlanta, Justin Morrison, Kid Chess in Atlanta, big program there, almost 4,000 students. Uh, uh, Chess Achieves in the Raleigh-Durham area, uh, you know, we're, we're friendly with one another and we, and we talk. It's pretty much the same for everyone. We're about one-fifth, one, one, between one-fifth and one-sixth of what we had in our school programs before the pandemic. Which, you know, which is a big hit, obviously. Yeah. Big hit. But again, Ben, I I have grown sort of comfortable, I mean, with the factor that everyone isn't really doing well. Like most people are not doing well because of this pandemic. You know, all the people I guess if you can work from home and you know, you sort of have a, a a higher end job where you can work from home and everything is fine, you're probably not taking the hit as much. But but people who actually, you know, did a business where People actually had to come in or you needed physical presence uh, that they're taking a hit. And I'm just trying to remain positive because everyone is taking that same hit. It's not just uh, it's not just chess. And we're and again, Ben, we are a little lucky. We are a little fortunate that the online infrastructure for chess already existed. Right. So uh, chess.com, Lee Chess, Chess Kid, whatever you name it, Chessable, all these different all these different platforms where you can learn and play, they already existed. So for us, for coaches, even though we don't get the same, even though we don't get the same numbers, we also didn't have to overly invest in the infrastructure. It was already, it was already there for us. So, uh, you know, I try to look at the positives, let's say. Yeah. And and yeah, you're so you're, I mean, you're very, um, I think it sounds like you're pretty appreciative of your position, but you're also lucky in that you're kind of the head of the organization. So you're able yes. to maintain enough work. It's, I know it's tough out there for someone like you seven years ago um, who, you know, without the school programs, it can be, it can be an adjustment, but as you say, lots of people are struggling. So I just hope that, that they can get the help they need and uh, we can all get through this. Um, but you mentioned Chessable a second ago, Peter, I want to uh, take a break and hear from them before we get into how you run these norm tournaments. Sure. Perpetual Chess is brought to you by Chessable.com. Their proprietary move trainer technology enables you to make sure that you remember opening sequences by using space repetition. It's also great for training tactical patterns and end games. And they have multitudes of courses from world-class trainers and authors to help you learn whatever you're interested in. Their latest offering is from former U.S. champion and super grandmaster Sam Shanklin, renowned opening theoretician. He's out with part
part two of his lifetime repertoire course of 1D4, and this one tackles some of the main lines. So you'll want to go to chessable.com and check that out as well as their other offerings. Okay, back to the interview. So Peter, I'm such a fan of these Norm tournaments. Uh, we've had so many guests uh, that participate in them. FM Yuri Kraken, who was on the show not that long ago, actually subsequently to his interview, got his uh, his last IM Norm down in Charlotte. So shout out to Yuri and congratulations. And uh, I know GM Michael Brown um, gave you guys a shout out when we talked to him. Um, I am Casa Corley, a favorite interview subject of mine. I know you guys are pretty tight. So it, it's, it's amazing work that you're doing, um, helping build up chess at the titled level. Um, could you walk us through how that aspect of uh, your work came into being? Yeah. So in 2015, when Feingold was here, I actually, I don't remember if he brought it up or if I brought it up, uh, but it came up that we could run a norm tournament. And uh, Feingold had some connections with uh, high level arbiters that he knew, and that could give me the sort of outline of what it would take to organize one. And so at that time, I believe it was 2016, first quarter, we ran our first Norm tournament. And it was fun to do. It was, it was a lot of work reaching out to all the players. And we actually had a few players drop out like two days before the Norm tournament, which poses a big problem because they're fixed player round robins. And so, you know, it, I was pulling my hair out, but we pulled it off, you know, and uh, that was number one. I totally let it go. I didn't think about it after that. I was like, there's no way I'm doing another one of those Norm tournaments. You can forget about it. Five <laughs> days and then people don't even show up and then I'm paying out of pocket to, to last minute fly somebody, you know, now you get airplane tickets for getting all $5 or whatever. But then, it, you know, last minute airfare, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, is like 800, 900 bucks. So um, I, I told myself, once this is over, I'm never doing another Norm tournament again. You know, I, I don't need to vote. I don't need to, I don't need to devote five days to lose money. Uh, you know, whatever. So same year as, as I alluded to earlier, I hired Grant Owen who, you know, became my first full-time employee of the chess center. You know, everyone else is just sort of hourly and part-time and his role was undefined at that time. It was just sort of like, Hey, we're sort of a chess startup, if you will. And, you know, I, you're going to help run the tournaments. You're going to help teach in the schools. You're going to, you're just going to be a thoughtful mind on what we can do. So at some point, you know, we used to always hang out at the chess center. It was like some of my friends, Dominique Myers and, and uh, Alex Velasquez and, and Grant at some point, you know, we're there and we're listening to rap music and we're playing blitz and, you know, we're hanging out. This is after hours. Of course, this is not, right. no one's walking in at this time. Okay. So at some point he goes to, he comes to me, Grant comes to me and he says, what about the norm tournaments? You know, what about reinstating the norm tournaments? You have to think Grant is coming from an organizer standpoint. When he was at Emory University in, in Atlanta, he was running tournaments at Emory. Then right after he graduated, he, he moved to Charlotte and he still, you know, he, he was getting his uh, arbiter certifications, and, you know, titles, you know, arbiter titles and all. So he had a real knack for, for directing tournaments. So he says, Peter, what about reinstating the norm tournaments? I was like, no, 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 no. We're not, no, no, right? And he said, well, let me propose something to you. Charge a high entry fee to make it worth our while. I'll take it on. I'll do the, you know, I'll do the uh, reaching out to the players and all the hassle that you don't want to deal with again. And we'll try to find reliable people 
So that way we don't have these cancellations at the last minute, which, which are a huge blow to the job. And, and I said, okay, well, propose it to me. This is how we come up with ideas, you know, propose it to me. It's sort of like a, like a, you know, like a conference room where you're, you're, you're throwing ideas at each other, except our conference room was like the mm-hmm. chess hall, you know? And, uh, and he goes, well, I think we could charge this entry fee. And, you know, I jumped out of my chair, right? I said, oh my God, what, what an entry fee. You know, I was like, you're crazy, man. I said, no one's going to pay that. But he sort of convinced me. And uh, I like when my employees do this, like, like throw it at me, convince me. I want to be, I, you know, I want my employees to be innovators. I don't want it to just be me, right? Which is why I'm giving him the credit here. So he said, listen, people, many, many, many American players flew to first Saturday tournaments in, in Europe, right? To play in norm tournaments, just the flight alone for them to Europe and the time consumption of flying like 10 hours to Europe or eight hours to Europe and connecting flights and all this would be the cost of these norm tournaments. And they could do it right here in the U S for a domestic flight, no passport needed. Many people could drive. And I said, I think you're crazy for charging this, for wanting to charge this entry fee. But I said that would justify five days of the chess center and the staffing of it to run these. I said, let's try it. Go, we'll do it. Okay. We'll do it. And then the rest is history, right, Ben? I mean, we're, we're like 20 norm tournaments deep now. Right. And, uh, and it was, that's how it sprung about. And, and, you know, they're not overly profitable Ben, despite the fact that we have to charge like a high entry fee because, you know, it's just a small group of players and you still have to accommodate your uh, titled players, right? You're already titled players. So, and you're the five days at the chess center staffing all day for five days. You can't have any other events at that time because it's not, not big enough to host any other events at that time. You know, we invested in the DGT electronic board so that people, we eventually, you know, eventually invested in those at the start. I was, I was, I I thought, you know, people don't deserve, I mean, these, you know, it's not like something we owe people. It's, it's very costly those uh, to do that. And it's, and you also need to, you need somebody to man them, right? It's, so that's another cost, but anyway, so that's how the norm tournaments came about. And then, the rest is sort of history. We, we've run we've run a lot of norm tournaments since then, and they've been and they've been uh, sustainable. I think people trust us that we we know what we're doing. We know you know what concoction of players we need, and even though it's a high entry fee, people know if they come to Charlotte, they have a high chance of getting a norm um, because everything everything's set for them. They just need to perform. Yeah, right. That's the key. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I have to cop to, I'm one of the people that was asking about DGT boards. I think I tweeted at your guys' Twitter account or something yeah. when I was trying to follow a tournament and I felt bad about it when they responded because I didn't even think about the cost. And I know as someone who, you know, runs, you know, this chess business, the podcast, as well as other chess businesses, it's always a little frustrating when people are like, why don't you do this? And it costs money, you know, like, and you're like, well, yeah, I would like to, you know, so shout out. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to pull that off. And certainly I appreciate it when, when I follow the tournaments, but it's something for, that's easy for a chess fan to, to uh, take for granted. Um, and at that time, Ben, you know, you like, it, it was still the early stages of the chess center. It wasn't like I could just say, Oh, Sure, random people out there. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. like, yeah, I'll buy $5,000 worth of DGT boards so that you can uh, watch them live. Because remember, Ben, Grant at that time, he was taking the carbon copy sheets. And when the games were finished, he I never saw somebody input games in chess space so quickly. 
And then we were uploading them to, to our, our chess server so people could go and, but we didn't have live games, but people could go and review them. So I was like, okay, we don't have the capital right now to just say, here's $5,000 for 10 DGT boards. Um, but what we can do is we'll, we'll input the PGN so that people can, can keep track. And we posted the standings and we, we just didn't have live games, right? So I want, and the, but here, here was the catch. That, I think that time, we had a very high profile guest playing in that norm tournament. It was Pragananda was playing in our norm tournament. Oh, it. wow. Uh, he was trying to make youngest GM in the world at that time, you know, ever be trying to beat Karyakin's record. So his company, uh, the company that sponsors him, Ramco, the Indian company that sponsors him, paid for his entry fee and his travel for he and his mother to come to Charlotte, of all places, to play in our norm round robin. And of course, John Bartholomew was there and everything. And so a lot of high profile guests were there. So it was like emotional for everyone. They're like, we demand the live games. And you and I don't know if you've ever seen my streams, but you don't demand anything from me. <laughs> you know, I'm over yeah. So so the thing is we tried to accommodate people. We wanted to keep people in the loop because we knew, hey, these people have a lot of fans, right? I think Hamilton was there and he wasn't a GM at the time. You know, uh, Bartholomew was there. Pragananda was there. So like, it was like, it was like, but we just couldn't invest in, in that at the time. So we were inputting the PGNs, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to strangle Twitter because I thought, well, wait a minute, like we're, we're hosting this event, which is pretty awesome. We just don't have like the capital to, to buy the DGT boards to do this. And we couldn't borrow them from anyone. Like I didn't know somebody who could send me 10 DGT. And even if they could, it'd probably cost more than buying. So, um, so so we eventually invested in those and now it's just like clockwork. You know, we set them up and we run them yeah. and it's no problem. But at that time, it's it, putting, it, putting it in perspective, we were early stage chess center at that time. We did what we could, but we couldn't do the live games. Yeah. I mean, it's 5,000 is no joke for any chess center, but actually I, I should have explained, by the way, apologies to any listeners who've been wondering what a DGT board is. Um, it's, it's a fancy wooden chess board, but its main feature is that it live broadcasts the games without anyone inputting them. So whenever you're watching a game on follow chess or chess 24 or chess.com or whatever it may be, whenever you're following a top level tournament, it's because they have a DGT board that just automatically transmits the moves. So that's what we've been talking about. And I'm glad that uh, you got it. And it's interesting here. You talk about the business of the, uh, the I am and GM ones. Cause just out of curiosity, I've always sort of crunched the numbers and just been like, how, do, how do they do this? But I have to admit, I didn't even realize, and I should have that, that you do charge money to the players. Um, which I mean, of course it makes sense. Um, so you, you mentioned that it's expensive just for context and for any young improvers out there listening or old improvers who are thinking about chasing a title. Do you mind saying roughly how much those tournaments are? Yeah. So we openly advertise it's $800 to play if you're just a normal person. And then if you happen to have a, a non us FIDE, uh, federation, then we'll lower that for uh, $200 if you're a hunter. Um, so it's $600 for non-US players. And the reason for that, Ben, as you may know, is in an every 10-man group, you need four four federations. or I mean, um, like four players who do not have the same federation as the rest of the players. So like if you have six US players, which obviously we're in the US, we're going to have a lot of US players, you still need four players who don't have the US flag as their federation. So uh, that's why, so that means we can hire, let's say in the GM group, 
three grandmasters with, you know, with uh, foreign flags, right? Because we have many of them living in the U.S. But then one of the players is needs to be a foreign hunter. So like one of our main guys, of course, is Gari Gari Shankar out of the uh, out of Chicago area because he still keeps his Indian flag, right? And he's and he's FIDE master. He's he's got all his norms and everything, but he likes to play in high level events. So he's he's oftentimes one of our players. So but you know, you need a special concoction of players for those, for those 10 man round robins. And so we offer some incentive. Uh, the thing is they're, they're a big sacrifice uh, of time for us. And so the way I, my sell to people who say $800 to play in a tournament, you're crazy, man. Actually, I thought the same thing when Grant proposed it to me, right. I called him crazy. I said, you're crazy, man. I said, but he convinced me and he said, well, wait a minute. People make sacrifices all the time. They play like they play a large uh, weekender uh, in the U.S., like a Chicago Open or a or a World Open, and there are a lot of money at stake. So you can win a prize, but you don't have the formula for norms necessarily. You could have a really good performance and not get a norm, right? You win some money, but most of our junior players who are who are fighting for norms, it's not the money that they're after. It's sort of the achievement of gaining a title or gaining rating points. And uh, Ben, you know very well, if you go to an open tournament, you could play a 2200 USCF or 2300 USCF player who has a FIDE rating of 1900 or 2000. You're not getting any FIDE points, right? This is the US is a very, uh, a very difficult place to gain FIDE rating points because we have our own rating system. And uh, you could have players that play well above their FIDE, their FIDE rating. But their but their feeder rating hasn't caught up to their to their strength yet. So my sell with the high entry fee is: listen, we have to pay you know the the players for playing. We have to accommodate them. We have our own costs of running the event. But if you come to that tournament and you perform like an IM, if you perform like a GM, you will get your norm, and uh, there will be no questions asked. Not if you played enough people in a different federation. Not the, what the rating average is. You know who you're playing. And you know what score you need before going into the tournament to make your norm. So really nothing is in question other than your skills. Yeah. And people can spend years trying to chase down those norms, especially historically. I mean, because like like Peter is alluding to, if you go to these big open tournaments, it's not even in your control who you play. You can have an amazing tournament, but you play one FIDE unrated person or one or two, and maybe that that ruins any chances of getting a norm. So certainly uh, from a cost benefit analysis perspective, it makes sense. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, on your guys' Facebook page, every week it seems like I see the picture of the person with the certificate. You know, uh, Brandon Jacobson got a title recently. I already mentioned FM Yuri Kraken. I know there's so many more. Um, so I want to commend you guys for doing that because it, it contributes so much to uh, the health of, of chess overall, particularly here in the U.S., um, one other question I, I can't help but wonder is uh, just like what type of conditions do you do you guys offer to like a, a grandmaster that's going to come and play? Yeah, so we give them a flat fee. Um, I won't you know I won't tell you that because it's no, it's negotiable in a lot of cases. But we give them a flat fee and then usually a shared hotel room with one of the other grandmasters uh, that we hire. So you know if we run two ten uh, man groups, that's six players that we have to hire. Three GMs for the GM group three IMs for the IM group. And so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll give them shared rooms. So it's, we have the hotel rooms and then their flat fee for playing over those five days. Okay. And then the people who play to come and get the norms are, 
are they necessarily staying in hotels or do you guys have like a network where they sometimes stay with with friends how does all how does all that work most of the time uh, they they stay in like the sponsored hotel um a lot of you know chess is a small world especially at the at the higher levels so a lot of the players will connect with one another like hey do you want to share a lot of the younger players come with their come with their family like with their mom or dad or whatever you know we have a lot of norm hunters that right. are still children so um you know they'll they'll just be rooming with their parents. You know, it's sort of funny, yeah. like people are grandmasters, you know, 13, 13 years old fighting for grandmaster titles. So they're still with their parents, you know, but uh, that's the way it is now. So a lot of the players are just with their families. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, keep up the good work. It's great to see. It's always nice to see uh, new talented players get titles. So we got a couple more topics, Peter. We still, listeners, hang in there. We're going to get to the improvement stuff, but I also got to talk about Twitch and uh, yeah. GM Daniel Narodisky, who's been on a few months ago. So you guys run these this amazing event. I mean, first of all, you do a lot of Twitch streaming, um, and I enjoy it when I see it, as I mentioned in the uh, Patreon little write-up. You're always talking about these old-school Soviet GMs, which uh, uh, which I appreciate. Um, your your knowledge of chess history is quite evident, but I also these these Naroditsky versus versus the world tournaments. Like, first of all, I mean, we heard Danya's side of the story, as it were, about how he came to Charlotte. But if you could talk a little about your friendship and how you got him to come here, I think listeners might enjoy he, come to Charlotte rather might enjoy hearing that. Yeah, I'll try to make it short, but it's uh, it's a little bit detailed. So in uh... In, em- in uh, Atlanta, every year, there's an Emory Castle chess camp, which is held at Emory, Uni- Emory University, and it's called Castle Chess Camp. And we were both instructors there. And it's an overnight chess camp. Uh, it's been for years. I think it was, it, it moved to Atlanta in, in like the early 90s or something. But anyway, so we're both instructors there. And Grant, who is employed at the chess center, he's one of the board members of Castle Chess. And so anyway, we have this like, social gathering at the end of camp because we're at the end of the day because we're the only lunatics that after teaching all day right we still want to play bullet we still want to play ping pong we still want to like hang out even though there's no time to hang out right so we we end at like 9 p.m and we're hanging out in the staff lounge we're the only lunatics that are hanging out in the staff lounge from like 10 p.m to 3 a.m when we have to wake up at 7 30 a.m <laughs> yeah. to go teach again so so I said, okay, so you're a lunatic and I'm a lunatic and we're, and we love chess. So that's how we befriended one another. That was the extent of it. Cause he lived in California. He was at Stanford and I was here in Charlotte. So that's how we befriended one another. And, um, every year that would happen. I said, listen, I said, you know, you're approaching graduation. Chess is clearly your passion. You know, he was starting to stream and, uh, he became sort of like an internet legend, you know, like with his uh, bullet and blitz and everything. And I said, well, if you decide that you don't want to pursue your master's degree because he was getting a lot of pressure to pursue his degree. Um, so if you decide not to do that, Charlotte, I think would be a great environment for me, for you. I think we're all like-minded. We love chess. We're younger. We have a lot of passion, a lot of energy. And I said, I think you would fit right in to the Charlotte chess center like staff. And um, I, I knew thought it was a long shot. I was like, you know, he's a grandmaster. He's, going to Stanford, I don't think this is necessarily the path that, you know, he had, he had for himself, you know, that he had envisioned for himself. But anyway, so at some point, you know, I kept bugging him about it. I used to bug John Bartholomew the same way. Cause he was, cause he was coming to Charlotte for like eight years 
And every year he would come for a camp. I would say, ah, like, get out of your igloo in Minnesota. <laughs> right. I, say, I say, get down here, you know. And uh, and but I couldn't talk him into it. I, I you know I was always close, but I couldn't talk him into it. Uh, so I was doing the same thing to Daniel. And then at some point, he's after graduation, he was just like, hey, is that is that still open? And I was like, oh, there's, you know, I was like, are you are you serious? Are you? It's like you know, it's past April. So it's not April Fools anymore. I said, what's he talking about? You know, he's not. I thought it was a long shot, you know, it's not, he's actually going to come. And so that's essentially how, you know, we had, he visited Charlotte in between and there were a lot of like, we hung out and stuff, you know, there was like a lot of social element too, like the social bond. It wasn't just a business yeah, yeah. decision for him or for me. So he just thought, Hey, like I can do what I'm doing, but I can do it from Charlotte where there's a community that appreciates chess and there's, you know, it's a thriving chess community. And I've got, I've got friends uh, that that I'm comfortable with too. So he can still do his online stuff, like his lessons and his streaming. He can still help out at the chess center and train our top juniors. And then we still have our peer group. So we add that social element to chess, which I believe is lacking in uh, in many places. So uh, so that's the long story. But we're very happy. I'm I'm very happy to to have Daniel here. He fits in great with uh, with all of our staff and and with our chess community. And Charlotte was long time overdue for a strong strong uh grandmaster like daniel to take the lead on on the strong junior players yeah although i mean could be even overqualified. i mean that that guy is so talented it's it's kind of mind-boggling whether it be in chess or impersonations or just uh presentation yeah. generally it's uh something to behold so congratulations on that and l- let's hear about these these matches because they're they're the quality of player you're bringing in to, to lock horns with uh with GM Naroditsky is is amazing. So um, could you tell our listeners for anyone who doesn't catch these matches uh, the, the genesis of the idea and uh, and the 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 type of match that uh, Danya is playing? Yeah. So we we started we started Twitch streaming uh, as a way to continue to engage our members with two weekly lectures that they could tune in uh, tune into. And uh, we were also doing some things for our kids in the school program, like puzzle challenges and play the coach and stuff. So we started streaming. And then after the school year ended, we eliminated the, the play the coach and puzzle challenge. And we said, okay, like what could we do to help build our Twitch following? I said, what if we organize some, you know, blitz matches, some official blitz matches uh, between Daniel, who's our grandmaster in residence, let's say here in Charlotte with, other top players in the world to see how he does against them. And we'll sort of bootstrap it ourselves. You know, like I'll do the commentary and, you know, we'll, we'll pitch in the money as needed um, to make them happen. And, uh, and we'll let people put their money where their mouth is because, you know, um, that's the way I like to see it. You know, everyone talks about who's the best, this, who's the best that, well, there's one way to figure it out. You could, you could just play, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and, so we started organizing those matches and we and we quickly realized people love match play. They like to see two, two you know two bulls lock horns. They like they like to see that and uh and I then like it's not work for me. Yeah, the of course. Only, the only work that uh that it is is behind the scenes just getting the players to commit to playing and like scheduling the time or whatever, but 3 hours of like talking about the games. I mean, I'd be watching it anyway. Yeah. So, um I enjoy it very much. So, it's not it's not work for me, uh, but it has helped us build uh, awareness of our channel as well. So, that was sort of uh from the business side, that was sort of like the investment of of the Naroditsky versus the World uh matches is that 
we, we also wanted to build uh, our Twitch following. And so now for our lectures, we get 125, 150 people watching every time. And we're over like 8,000 followers, which I think for a new channel is, is pretty good. And a lot of that is from the Naroditsky versus the world exposure. And then from that group of people who were, who were watching the matches, there are a lot of improvers as well. So we were able to, we were able to, um, to grasp some of those players who wanted to improve their chess. And so they tune into my lectures. So the Naroditsky versus the world is, is uh, awesome for Daniel. He gets to play some of the best players in the world. Like he's played even, even guys like Wesley. So and Mamad Yarov in yeah. matches, right? So it's not just like, like lower level GM. It's like the, the elite too, right? Duda even, right. Who, who just won the speed chess champion, uh, the qualifier, right? He, he, he played Daniel in a match as well. So some really talented guys have played the matches and uh, it's been great for Daniel. It's been great for the channel. And it's just been a lot of fun. Like, I look forward to them. We have one tomorrow, for example. I mean, the, the November 4th. Yeah, um, it'll, it'll be archived yeah. by the time this comes out. Yeah, we're recording here on uh, on election day. Um, and how I know Daniel was just winning match after match for a while, but I was having trouble finding an updated um, uh, rundown. How's, how has he done against all these other giants of the game? He's only lost, he's only lost three matches. Uh, he the last match he lost to Fedoseev uh, from Russia, and he lost to Mamadov, Ralph Mamadov, and he lost to Salem Saleh. So he of the many matches that he played, I think this is match number nineteen. He tomorrow, you know, November fourth will be match number nineteen. He has only lost three of the eighteen matches so far. That's amazing. <laughs> it's so yeah. impressive. And tell us a little bit more. So as I've mentioned, I've, I've, uh, I've watched your, your Twitch streaming a bit myself and yeah, you're, you're always going like, you're clearly a good teacher and you're always going like kind of deep in the weeds, you know, you're not like, uh, you're not like, uh, doing pushups and listening to techno techno on, uh, on your right. Twitch channel, at least, at least when I watch. So, um, What's the uh, what's the idea behind that? And like, is there a certain time that listeners can can tune in to check it out? Yeah. So Tuesday and Thursday evening, six thirty p.m. Eastern time. Tuesday is learn from the legends. That's when you know I talk about all the uh, old Soviet guys. You know, and uh, <laughs> right. and then uh, Thursday's chess ideas you must know, where I just decide on a topic that I want. It could be anything from like a pawn structure topic to just a general topic like uh, like like drawing a rook endgame or something. Right. It could be it that's a more open topic on Thursday, but those are the two lectures and um, they're both 6 30 PM Eastern Tuesday and Thursday. But, um, but yeah, so the, well, the way I teach is similar to, because I know that most people watching on Twitch are adults. And, um, and so I, I want to do things that help them build a chess culture because many adults um, learn chess later. You know, if they're watching me on Twitch, they probably learned online and they don't really know much about like who the world champions were, who the best players of the past were. So I use the Tuesday lecture to just sort of quickly run through some chess history. Like, Hey, this is David Bronstein. He was one of the best players who, you know, who didn't become a world champion. Here are some of his results. Here are some of his best games. And uh, the games and the analysis take up most of the lecture with just a little bit of history sprinkled in to just build build a little bit of chess culture. And I feel like players need that. I know there's yeah. been discussion about, you know, whether it's, of course, it's not necessary to know the players of the past, but we can learn, we can learn greatly from them, you know, and, uh, and I enjoy it so much because I even uh, learn new things about 
players myself and I see some beautiful games that I had never discovered before, you know, when I'm researching the players. So it's, it's been great for me, but basically my, my teaching, um, my teaching mechanisms are more just practical. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not asking people to, uh, okay guys, you know, spend 10 minutes solving this and write down every tree branch variation and stuff like that. That's, you know, I was already skeptical about using Twitch as a place to lecture because Twitch is, I feel like when people come to Twitch, they, they want something more action packed, right? You know, they want, they want to see someone playing bullet chess or blitz chess and then smashing a mouse into the wall. And then like, they want like, you know, they're coming for first person shooter games or they're, you know, they just want something more action packed. But here I am going through games that were played a hundred years ago and giving people a history lesson. Right. So I didn't know if it would be the best forum to do that, but it seems okay. So far it seems, it seems okay. Cause I rarely play on stream. Cause you know, like I'm a, I'm a certified sore loser. So I don't <laughs> like, to, I don't like to, uh, I don't necessarily like to play on stream. That's something I would rather do in private so if I'm not happy with myself, you don't, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't perpetrate that sort of negative energy on you. Uh, but so I'm at home when I'm teaching and uh, that's primarily what I do uh, on stream. Good stuff, man. Well, yeah, it's really good. So I definitely recommend listeners check it out. And do you have a, a few um, like favorite resources for all the, the chess history knowledge that you've accumulated? What, what do you credit this knowledge to? Well, so I, when I was learning chess uh, in my teens, I read a lot of books and uh, which is like a thing of the past now, but I, I read a lot of books and I use, uh, I use, you know, um, because I read these old books, naturally I was interested in the chess history. It wasn't like I read chess history books. It was just like, I was sort of interested in the chess history just because I saw all these classic games uh, of the past. And so um but yeah, I mean, as far as resources, you know, a lot of times I'm downloading the PGNs from chessgames.com, right? Which is a place that everyone should sort of have on their, you know, on their on their bookmarks, you know, because there's, you can find almost any game you want there. Um, I can't remember the name of this guy on Twitter who has these like old pictures. You might know who I'm talking about. It's like- Probably Douglas Griffin, I'm guessing. Doug, Douglas Griffin, yeah. So yeah. a lot of times I'll go to his Twitter uh, page and I'll try to find- uh, pictures that sort of rep, you know, like if I'm talking about Bronstein or Geller and he's got some old pictures of Geller on there, I'll show them to, you know, I'll go to his Twitter, Twitter page on stream and, uh, and show them, you know, uh, some pictures or something just to try to put them in the environment. And, uh, and I love using old books. Like last lecture, I used some games from The Art of Sacrifice in Chess by Spielman, which I think is a every, everyone must have that book. And, uh, and so I also try to use these sort of old historical reference manuals, these old books of the past, and just try to give them like a, like a modern feel or, or give people a sort of uh, a way to learn from those books without actually having to read them. So like I'm, I'm there you know, like I decode the books for them and, and try to try to give them what they need from each from each of the classics. At yeah. least for what I believe. Good stuff. Yeah. And as I am Willie Hendricks has uh, written and mentioned when I interviewed him, if you if you trace the history of chess from its beginning, you're also sort of tracing an individual's like uh, 
development of chess knowledge since since people as a whole have learned more chess through time if you start at the beginning you're also going to learn more chess through time so definitely a good way to uh to kill two birds with one stone so peter as i expected i mean i'm so i'm so such an admirer of the charlotte chess club and i will i've been wanted to get the whole story for so long that that of course we went long so if you're up for it, I propose that we spend maybe 10 minutes on chess improvement, but sure. that, and then maybe you could come back sometime and do a proper adult improver interview. Would you be up for that? For that? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So let's give a little sneak preview. So I'm sure you get asked all the time, how do I get better? So what's your answer? Yeah. So a lot of people, and I talk about this on my streams too. So a lot of people, they, when they ask this question, they're told, go do chess tactics improve your board vision. And that is true, Ben, as you know, as a chess teacher yourself, if you're starting chess, the way you get better is you stop making outright blunders. You're allowed to make mistakes and blunders, but they can't be like in your face blunders. Like I move a piece to a square and then the guy captures it, right? It's not, it can't be that, it can't be that direct. So depending on what your level is, you have to be able to omit the very basics. Uh, And then, so that never goes away. But I feel like when people say that, Ben, they're not really offering, I feel like everyone knows that now, right? Even, even if you're just starting, you ask what to do and then people are like, do tactics, yeah. right? I feel like that. So I don't feel like by saying that, I feel like it's almost implicit. Like everyone knows you should be doing your, your tactics and visualization. So I am going to say that, but for me, Ben, um, one of the things that I thought helped me a lot was, was going through Grandmaster Games. Um, and I think that older games are better for the improver because the disparity in skill was a little bit greater. So you can actually see what's supposed to happen. Like it, it's more yeah, relatable to yeah. the amateur, right? So that, that's, that's what I think is important. Cause you know, even for myself, you know, I look at some like Caruana Carlson or something oh my God, yeah. wins, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't think I would, I could ever play like this. Like even, even reviewing this game, it's like, I don't think I could ever play with such precision and accuracy. And I, while I appreciate it, I don't find it to be a great uh, learning tool to do that. Right. So I appreciate it. Like it's beautiful in its own way, but when people ask me about improvement, I don't think that's the way to do it. And, uh, and so I think you go back through these classic games, which is why I do the learn from the legends lecture. And you see that there's a little bit of a skill gap between the players. So you'll see like a, 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 a game where a positional idea is carried out in full with no tactical interruptions, right? And I think that that's really important because now people defend so well. Like you could have an outpost. It's like outpost, schmoutpost. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stir up some tactical trouble and you're never going to get the, you're never going to get the clean nursing of a weakness like you got from the old games. And uh, so I think that, you know, well, and I mean that at the top level, if you're like 1700 or 2000, oh, you're going to get the clean victory because they're not going to, the defense is not going to be as tenacious. But when you get to the higher levels, people are defending better. They're very well aware of the positional traps and things not to get into. So you rarely ever get the book like positions from the forties, fifties, sixties or whatever. But I do believe for the, for the improver, you should start with the, uh, you should go through game collections. You should develop an intuition based on playing, but also reviewing games. And I feel like for the adult improver, that's the most valuable because trying to compete with the younger generation in 
uh, opening memorization or tactical calculation and energy, I think you're actually you're actually at a disadvantage if that's where you're trying to compete. I think that developing an intuition by going through games, uh, playing a little with a little bit more positional sense and navigating away from long calculated lines or long memorized opening variations, I think is the best for the adult improver. And I think a way to to learn how to carry out those plans is by reviewing old the old games of chess because you can also build your chess understanding and intuition that way, which I think is your competitive advantage. Yeah, excellent advice, especially to, to gear it particularly for adults. And I know you say chess books are becoming a thing of the past, but here on Perpetual Chess, we're in we're in denial about that. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, do you have any more recommendations you might give for, for someone listening? I mean, I, of course, I have some myself, but I'd like to pick your brain first of like people yeah. who, who do want to say that, OK, you convinced me, Peter. I want to get the historical perspective. I want to know um, how the greats uh, develop their thinkings and how they beat their contemporaries uh, as if they were children. Um, so what any other books you would recommend to get that historical perspective besides watching uh, your Twitch show on Tuesday nights? Yeah. So I think that um, I always like game collections written by the player. So, uh, you know, uh, Mikhail Tal's Life in Games, of course, I know that comes up a million times, but I sincerely, you know, uh, think that that's a great book. And it also, if you actually read it, you know, people say like, oh, Tal was so sacrificial and everything. I'm like, well, if you've read, if you read Mikhail's, uh, Mikhail Tal's Life in Games, you actually realize that he also was a great positional player as well. And, and as you would expect for a world champion to be a, to be a, a, you know, a versatile player. And if you read through game collections of the players that you like, I think that is something that you can do. So I, I, I don't want to, you know, for me, I work, I was trained by Alexander Shabalov whenever I was like an improving player in my twenties and my early twenties. And so I consider Mikhail Tal my grand coach. Okay. <laughs> right. So I have a particular sort of bias, but, um, I also like Smyslov. I also like Petrosian and Botvinnik because I feel like their games are a little bit easier to understand than if you fast forward to the modern day players like Kasparov, uh, let's say starting with Kasparov, and then you Anand, Topalov, and Kramnik because, well, Kramnik sort of had a way that you could understand his games. Like you maybe couldn't play like Kramnik, but you could sort of, you could sort of like understand what was happening. And, uh, and so I just think that, you know, Find a game collection that you like. Find a player that you like. Go through their game collection. As far as specific books, Art of Sacrifice and Chess to develop a intuitive sacrificial ability, I think is a, a much better book than, well, I don't want to call any books out. Let's, let's, not, let's not throw any other books okay. under the bus. There are a lot of classic books where people recommend for attack. But I think the Art of Sacrifice and Chess is a good, and they updated it. Ben, I don't know if you know this. They updated it. I recently got this and Karsten Mueller added to the book. And this is by, uh, so he revised some of the lines, you know, just in case there were errors in, in Spielman's original analysis. And then he added chapters, uh, like he added some Mikhail Tal games, which of course came years after Spielman. Uh, he added some Mikhail Tal games and then he added a chapter on defensive technique too, which, you know, so this is a, this is a great, uh, book. It's uh, Russell Enterprises, uh, The Art of Sacrifice and Chess by Spielman, which so is a this classic. is Rudolf Spielman, not John. It took me a minute. That's to, right. To Rudolf Spielman. Okay. Uh, originally, yeah. So it reproduced by, you know, and added to by Karsten Mueller in 2015. And fortunately for everyone, 
it's in algebraic notation. Oh, the goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So I think like uh, for to develop a to develop a sacrificial intuition, that is a great book. And then added by you know with the, with the additional notes by Carson Mueller, it's even it's even better. And um, Simple Chess by Michael Steen is a is a is a basic but good way to develop some basic uh, let's say positional positional understanding. And that was recommended to me by my teenage chess coach, Matthew Noble, national master, Matthew Noble. So, um, so, you know, you know how it is, Ben, it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, people want a recipe. They want a formula for what you did. Right. And they're like, I just, you know, if I could get to 2300, I would be cool. And you know, like, what did he do and stuff like that. But those are the books that stick out to me. I read a lot of books, Ben, a lot, but I learned the most from playing, you know, so that's the thing. Yeah. And it's a lot like going to the gym, like, you you know, more so than asking what type of exercise you should do. It's like, do the one that you'll do, you know? So if you, you know, if you like playing racquetball, play racquetball. But if you, you know, if you like going for a run, do that, you know, it's the same thing. It's the same thing in chess, but it's never going to be easy because it's all about logging the hours and no matter what. Um, yeah, and Ben, sorry, but I, I have to plug Vola Keaton's Perfect Your Chess. Oh, yeah. I, I can't believe I left that out. When I was, when I was 2100... I read, you know, I read, I did the puzzles out of Vola Keaton's Perfect Your Chess with my close friend, Dominique Myers. And very, very, very soon, both of us became national master after completing that book over a summer. And then I feel like it, it helped my calculation ability to be able to get to where I was. I think if I could pinpoint yeah, one so, thing later in my chess growth. Yeah, so that one's yeah. uh, fairly advanced. I think it might be out of print these days, but I believe Jesse Cry said that he's working on another edition as well. So that's something oh. to look forward to. I'm just uh, Googling it as I speak. But yeah, for anyone at that level, it's uh, come up many times. I've only seen a couple puzzles in it, actually. I still haven't tackled it, but it sounds like it would be a good one for me to try to um, try to sharpen up. Um, let's see. I'm just checking Amazon. Yeah, it's, it's out of print, but, uh, but people can try to track it down and look forward to the second one. And again, that's more advanced. The other books that Peter mentioned, I would say people down into towards the 1500 rating can, can learn from, um, and simple chess, maybe even uh, lower level than that, although higher level as well, but it's a pretty universal, uh, teaching style. Um, all right, well, Peter, this has been awesome as I expected. Um, any closing thoughts before we, uh, we, you've assured me you're going to go vote. So we got to let you go do that. I'm going to go vote. And, uh, well, I would just say that, you know, uh, probably if people, if people found out that I was doing this uh, interview was mostly about the Charlotte chess center, there may be organizers and people who have their own chess academies and own chess clubs listening in. And I would just say like, uh, you know, we're all sort of in this together and that in that in this COVID time, we really have to become innovative and uh, keep your members engaged. Don't just drop the ball, keep your members engaged as you can, you know, form a chess.com club, form a Lee chess club, have weekly tournaments and try to keep people engaged through this time. And I just hope that, uh, you know, I hope that uh, people remain confident that as sooner or later we will get back. And I would say, uh, generally, don't be discouraged by the online chess boom, thinking that it's going to take away from over-the-board chess. I think it's a good way to keep people engaged. And when society reopens, I think we will all actually benefit from the online chess boom. So that's my uh, my sincere thoughts 
right now. And I may change that if you invite me back in a year, depending on where we are. But but I think that if we can make it through this time period, uh, some good days are ahead of us uh, for chess, even for us who do over the board in-person activities. Yeah, well said. And I agree. And Queen's Gambit, I mean, that's not an online thing. I mean, people are watching it on Netflix, but it's got the old school over the board feel in it. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch it yet, Peter. But uh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that'll be its own little mini boom. Uh, Agadmater tweeted the other day or no, sorry. I think it was, I apologize. I can't remember if it was Agadmater or Le- Levy Roseman, but the, their percentage of uh, woman viewers went from like 2% to 3.5% or something. So still way too low. Shout out to all the women listening, but but at least it's a step in the right direction. Definitely. And and uh, again, I, I think that we can't, we can't see it as something that is taking away from us right now. I think we need to see it as something that's keeping chess in the air until, until we can get back to what we were doing before. Yeah. So Peter's email is public. It's on the website, the Charlotte Chess Center website. So that's the best way to reach him. They've also got a Facebook page. And I, of course, will link to these things in the show description, as well as all of the wonderful recommendations. Check out Peter on Twitch, uh, Tuesday and Thursday nights. Uh, check out Naradisky versus the world. Uh, Peter, anything else to add before we let you get out of here and go vote? Uh, no, thank you, Ben, for inviting me. And uh, I'm happy to be a part of this forum. And uh, yeah, and I just hope that uh, this was helpful for for everyone out there. Okay, I think it definitely was. Have a good day, Peter. Thank you, Ben. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who help continue to spread the word about perpetual chess, whether it's via a positive review on a podcast platform or telling a friend or however you choose to do it. You can also engage with the Perpetual Chess community. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFisher1 or join the Perpetual Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. For now, the Perpetual Chess Instagram page has gone back into retirement, but someday we will break the blockade and start marching up the board again. Last but not least, you can also email me through the podcast website or directly at ben at perpetualchesspod.com. But more than anything, I would like to express my gratitude to those who provide financial support to Perpetual Chess. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to support this community endeavor and allow me to sustain and continue to improve the show. So without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. They are Chessable.com. Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Andy Ryerson, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, Derek Jones, I am Dimitri Schneider, Drake Domingue, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Galuk, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Lila engine analysis, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdinaze Twitch channel, 
Peter Sodi, Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Robert Karcher, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I would also like to thank... Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Brian Tillis, Bruce Scott, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Hamblin, David Cramley of Chessable, David Lazarus of LazManChess.com, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM, Donnie Ariel, Not I Am Elect, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrick Ryland, Fide Arbiter, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letarte Lavoie, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zanonis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vanderveld, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barter, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schut, Harash Srinivasan, Jacob Kovac, Jacob Turan, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Moore, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Trinad, Juan Almaguer, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fantaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gata of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostya Kowiecki, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negmat Mulajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, uh, Richard Hollenbach, Robert Tichy, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, Sven Retiek, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you guys next week. Podcast Network. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.